0: I'll just say again, it's, been a de- it's a delight to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation to Dr. Keithley and Southeastern to have me here. It's been a delight to get to know my brother in Christ, uh, Nathaniel, a little bit. I haven't met him before. And I thought I would just start by discussing just a little bit about my background, because, you know, as I stand up here, if you'll pardon the pun, you don't know me from Adam. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm in, I'm in, you know, I'm in the south of the States, and you're looking at me, and you're probably thinking, oh, yeah, great. The evolutionist, long hair, yeah, figured, right? Some long-haired hippie going to talk about evolution, right? Probably votes Democrat. (laughs) Probably eats tofu. All those kinds of things. Well, sometimes things are not as they seem. Um, First thing I'll tell you is that I'm I'm a family man. I'm supported by a wonderful wife named Val and my children. This picture's a little bit old, but it shows you who they are. I love my family. I love my children. I love the place that God has planted me. This is British Columbia, Canada. That's where I come from. I live um, near Vancouver, British Columbia, and I teach at Trinity Western University, which is near there. We have been blessed to get a small piece of property on one of the islands off the coast of uh, British Columbia, and I am constantly amazed at the wonder of God's creation when I go out there. So, don't worry, we couldn't afford waterfront property. That's not my hit. not that, yeah. I'm also a bit of a redneck, and unapologetically so. I come from the northern part of my province, and I grew up hunting and fishing and those types of things, so no, I don't eat tofu. Here's, a, here's me on my property, on our property, uh, clearing, some, clearing some of the land. And we're in the process of building a small cabin there. So I love God's creation. And if you look closely, some of it'll have to be in the front for people to see it. There's actually a deer looking at me running the chainsaw there. And what's interesting is on this island, the deer will actually come to the sound of the chainsaw because they love to nibble on the tops of the tre- the treetops, the limbs once they once they've been felled. So I also enjoy that island for its opportunities in the in the fall. Like I said, I don't eat tofu. I'm a hunter and I like hunting those deer. I'm also, and this is where most people in this conversation know me from, um, I'm also an evolutionary creationist. I hold that evolution is the mechanism that God chose and used to bring about biodiversity on Earth. So here's a photo of me doing a lecture uh, a number of years ago, and if you can't see it, but the title on the slide behind me says, you know, why I am an evolutionary creationist. So even though you've seen some things about my personal um, life and, and who I am, the most important thing about me is that I'm a follower and lover of Jesus Christ, that I name him as my Lord and Savior. And like Nathaniel, we both have a passion for exploring God's creation and using the tools of science to better understand that creation. So that's part of what I'm going to present, present to you today. So there you go. But yeah, I, li- I have long hair. I get it. I saw one other gentleman here with long hair, so I I felt uh, at least somewhat affirmed. Okay. Here's a quote from Abraham Kuyper that makes a, a point that I would like to make, and it makes it more strongly and better than I could. He says, there's not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not say, does not cry, mine. So is science an acceptable activity for a Christian? I would say absolutely, because... If every square inch of creation is Christ's domain, then it is an act of worship to explore that creation. Here's another very famous quote from Francis Bacon. He says, Let no man think or maintain that a man can search too far or be too well studied in the book of God's word or in the book of God's works. So the idea that God has given us two books, the creation that we can see as a form of general revelation, but also um, God's uh, scripture that he's given to us as special revelation. Now, if we think about these two forms of revelation, it should become pretty clear pretty quickly that there can be no inherent conflict between these two forms of revelation. If God is indeed the author of both, then there cannot be an inherent conflict between those two forms of revelation. What we read in scripture and what we read through science should cohere. They should be connected to one another because they have the same author. Now, wouldn't it be lovely, you know, I could say, "Eh," and there's my last slide and we're done, right? No. (laughs) The conversation that we're in, of course, deals with the issue that we appropriate science and we appropriate scripture through human activities. So... We have the process of exegesis and hermeneutics to better understand God's word, and we can use the scientific method to better understand God's world. Now, it is probable, even likely, I would say, that in the process, because both exegesis and science are human activities, and because humans are involved, therefore they are both flawed activities, we can expect that there may be apparent conflicts between what we see in scripture and what we see in science. But the point to make is this, the problem is not God's problem. The problem is a human problem because both of our exegesis, our exegesis and our hermeneutics and our science are human activities. Okay. So, despite the possibility of apparent conflict between scripture and science, both are sources of God's revelation. And Christians aren't well served if we denigrate either form of revelation. We should be, have the ability to do robust science and robust exegesis and hermeneutics, with the expectation that these will cohere, even if we have to live in the tension, perhaps in a given time, where we don't necessarily see the full connection between these two sources of revelation. Here's just one um, little quote from my own institution, from Trinity Western, our statement on creation. We say, A biblical view of creation does not constrain legitimate scientific inquiry and research, because we accept two sources of information, biblical revelation and natural revelation. Another way to put this to say then is that well-supported science is a witness. It's an imperfect witness, but it is a witness to God's revelation in the form of natural revelation. And actually, I don't have time to get into it here, but there's a very good argument to be made, a very good case to be made, that the reason why science has its flourishing in Christian Europe in the time and history that it does is because those early practitioners of science were convinced that they could figure out how God had ordered the cosmos because they were convinced that there was a mind behind the cosmos and that there would be order and regularity to it because of that. So science, in many ways, has its motivations from a Christian theistic understanding of the world. Okay, let's talk a little bit about theory. Nathaniel introduced this well from some, with some quotes from my book, so we, can, we don't have to spend a huge amount of time on this. A theory in science is something that's quite different from the colloquial usage of theory. If, science, if somebody says on Facebook, well, that's your theory, well, what are they saying? Well, that's your guess, that's your conjecture, that kind of thing. In science, a theory is an explanatory framework that with, has withstood repeated experimentation. So it makes hypotheses that then you can test and then you can either accept, um, or sorry, you can fail to reject the hypothesis, or you can reject the hypothesis. But in colloquial usage, as we mentioned, theory means something closer to guess or conjecture. To put another way, only a theory is actually pretty high praise from a scientific viewpoint. So if somebody says, well, that's only a theory, the intent is to try to denigrate it using sort of that colloquial usage but in fact to a scientist we perk right up and you say oh theory that means that it's a, a well-tested explanatory framework that makes accurate predictions okay so I put this comic here just to sort of ease the shock of what I'm going to say to you now it's a fantastic comic or comic maybe fishy crackers actually argue over their origins as well hopefully they can come to com- some understanding that they're still you know that their brother and, and uh, brothers in Christ and that they don't have to argue about it, but they say, despite what you may have been told as a Christian, evolution is actually a theory in that scientific sense. It's a well-tested explanatory framework. It's supported by a very large body of experimental evidence. I could put each and every one of you to sleep if we extended this lecture as I went through the reams of evidence that we have in support of evolution because it's been a productive scientific theory for 150 years which is not to say that i might not put some of you to sleep i hope not to but hopefully not it makes accurate predictions and we have not yet falsified it through experimentation but the idea is is that we hold all scientists hold theories somewhat provisionally you can have a very well supported theory it can make boringly accurate predictions but we always hold it at least somewhat tentatively because we know that future experimentation may cause us to revisit our ideas. Although in that case, any addition or modification to a theory still has to explain the data that has been previously accumulated. Okay, so evolution is also the most foundational theory in biology. Here's a very famous quote from a population geneticist who happened to be an Orthodox Christian as well. He says, nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. Okay, so Darwin had a hypothesis at the beginning Evolution at a t- well, There was a time when evolution was a hypothesis. His idea was that species share common ancestors. So here he mused that perhaps populations might become separated, and as we've heard, Darwin didn't have any idea about genetics. He had some idea about heritable variation. But we would now say populations become genetically separated in some way. This means that genetic changes through mutation, recombination, and so on, would not be averaged across those two populations because they can no longer exchange genetic information with one another. This can allow for differences between these two populations to accumulate and their average characteristics to change. Now, these differences may lead to new species over time. And this process is actually much like the formation of languages. So in the book, Adam and the Genome, I spend a good deal of time drawing an analogy between how languages change over time and how species change over time. And actually I should make a quick aside just to say that nothing I've said so far is especially controversial even from a young earth creationist perspective because young earth creationism has a large amount of speciation within it, as Dr. Jensen has been discussing. So how do new languages form over time? Well again, populations may become separated, a common ancestral population of speakers, we know through experience that languages have this incremental process of change within them as well. Changes in syntax, changing in spellings, perhaps neologisms that are coined in a new population. And if you have two populations that are now separate, they're not averaging these differences across them. So again, we can have differences accumulate, average characteristics can change, and these differences may lead to new languages over time. Now it doesn't necessitate that you will have new languages form but it at least leads to that possibility so you can think of species and languages as information systems transmitting their information from one generation to the next but both of these systems species or languages do not transmit that information perfectly from one generation to another so there's this possibility of change okay Here's just one example that I'll, I'll show as a way to sort of get our mind around how this works. If I put this up and allow you to read it, most of us, the vast majority of us in this room would not be able to read this. This is actually Anglo-Saxon that you're looking at from about the year 990. And this is John 129 from the West Saxon Gospels. Now, I love to use this as an example because it's got Middle Earth in it, right? Here is God's Lamb. Here is something along the lines of the doing away of Middle-earth sin, which if you know if your memory verses and you know what John 129 is. Okay, here's the Wycliffe Bible from the 1300s. Now, this is a lot more comprehensible to us. It's closer to us, but it still shows some affinity with Anglo-Saxon. Here's the Tyndale New Testament in the 1500s. Here's the King James Version from the 1611. One of the reasons why this analogy works so well for Christians is because we're all familiar with language change over time because we read different editions or different translations of the scriptures. So if you've read a King James Bible and you've read a modern translation, you know that languages can shift over time. And here's a modern, oh, sorry, there's the present-day King James. One of the ironies of the King James-only movement, of course, is that they don't use the 1611 King James. They use the Cambridge editions of the King James. But that's what you, now I've gone from preaching to meddling, right? So we don't want to do that. Okay, and here we have a modern translation with the NIV. Now, the point is is that it's not like everybody on one day in 1394 sat down and said, you know, we've been speaking Anglo-Saxon for a few hundred years, it's time to change. What we're looking at is actually snapshots that are taken from a continuous process over time. It's also decidedly difficult to draw a line of demarcation on this process to say, okay, who was the first speaker of modern English? Well, it's an incremental process over time. It's a gradient, and it's decidedly difficult to draw a line on that gradient. Okay. You can think of this as sort of a fossil record, for example. If we had this, you know, the West Saxon Gospels, and then we had the modern translations, we might look at that in the present day and say, wow, there's a huge difference between those two, which suggests to us that these are separate entities, even though there's similarities that we see between them. But... Because we have these other snapshots, we can see that there is a plausible transition from one to the other. And actually, historically, we know this. Every generation spoke the same language as their parents and as their children, all the way along through this process. Yet, what we see over a long period of time is an incremental process of change, where a large amount of change accumulates in a particular lineage. Okay. So, so too with species. The shift in average characteristics over time, either of a language or of a species, means that we have separate populations that either potentially could become new species or they could become new languages. But the process is a gradient over time. Okay, so that was Darwin's original hypothesis, and that's a bit of an analogy to to help us understand how that might work. Although, as I'll come back to in the second lecture, that population level understanding is quite important as well. Species form as populations shift their average characteristics over time. Um, New languages aren't formed by two people that go off and start their own language. We're talking about population groups that shift their average characteristics if they diverge from one another. We also, um, uh, Nathaniel, spoke a little bit about whale, um, some some of the evidence for whale evolution. And this is one example that I like to use as well. And the idea is, is that evolution can sometimes force you into some rather counterintuitive but, rather, but also intriguing predictions. So if we look at present day whales, we wouldn't have, and just looked at present day whales, we wouldn't have this idea that instantly came to mind that they're the descendants of four limbed terrestrial um, tetrapods, four limbed organisms. They're so exquisitely adapted to the aquatic environment. Darwin actually got completely lambasted for this as a prediction in the original edition of The Origin of Species, and a Christian apologist at the time actually takes him to task on that, and I discuss it a little bit in the book. Darwin was so embarrassed by that pushback that how he could, you know, propose such an outlandish idea that whales are the descendants of four-limbed terrestrial ancestors that he actually greatly, greatly reduced that section of The Origin of Species in the second edition because it was so embarrassing to him. Now... Darwin was a man ahead of his time on this point, but the lines of evidence that I'll show you now were not available at that time. Okay, So, evolution can produce a hypothesis that modern whales, or cetaceans as they're called, are descended from ancestral terrestrial organisms through a series of transitional forms. This makes certain predictions about what one might find if one looked in the fossil record, and Dr. Jensen showed some of these species. But the point to make is that we fail to reject the hypothesis of common ancestry by what we observe in the fossil record. If we look in the fossil record, what we see are a number of species that are not in the present day and are unlike anything that we see in the present day, and blur the distinction between a terrestrial four-limbed tetrapod and a fully aquatic modern whale. Some of these species were actually known at the time of Darwin. The basilosaurids is one. And these are ones that have very, very small hind limbs that are still outside the body wall. So they actually, actually, they actually do have hind limbs that are outside of their bodies. That's not present in present-day whales. Present-day whales have those a little bit of bone back there, but it's not, it's in, it's not outside. It's encased within the body wall. This, the fossils that were known back at Darwin's time of the basilosaurids were first, they weren't instantly recognized as mammals, hence the name basilosaurid, which sounds a lot like a dinosaur. They were miscategorized at first. And also, the samples that they had were not well-preserved enough to preserve those small hind limbs that are present. Now, those hind limbs are not capable of bearing the body weight of those large animals. These are aquatic animals, but they have these tiny hind limbs and well-established front flippers. So, we fail to reject this hypothesis when we look at the fossil record. Now, another prediction that might arise is that it's possible if you look at the embryology, the early embryological development of these species, that we might see some hints of a prior past. Now, evolution doesn't guarantee that that's the case, but it's a, it's a possibility because embryological development is often difficult to change in, oh, even over long spans of time. So, embryologically, we often see hints of other histories when we look at present-day organisms. So it's not an, it's an, a chance or a possibility that whales might display some characteristics in their embryological development that are reminiscent of a 4 limbed terrestrial past. So the first thing to say that is that, or the first one way to test that hypothesis is just to look at present-day cetaceans and their embryological development. So what we have here are early dolphin embryos. And they have several features of their development that are challenging to explain from a non-evolutionary perspective. The first is is that modern-day whales are actually four-limbed organisms, but they are four-limbed organisms only for a very brief period of their embryological development. So you've seen that in present-day whales in the adult form, they have a little bit of bone back there, but it doesn't extend beyond the body wall. Early on in embryological development, whales actually do have four limbs, so the developmental program that says "Make a four bud" runs as it does normally in all four limbed animals. The developmental program that says "Make a hind limb bud" also runs in whales just as it does in other mammals. but later on in development, a second developmental program actually comes along and overrides the developmental program in the hind limb bud only so basically biologically what happens is Start a forelimb bud, start a hind limb bud, and then some hours later, another program comes along and says, "No, no, 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 we don't want to do that. Come on back in. We don't want to do that." And it's actually at the molecular level we've just, we've investigated this, and it's a second developmental program which overrides the first, but the first one runs normally at the beginning of embryological development. Another interesting feature about whales is that, like any good mammal they start off with two nostrils on the front of their face. So one of the defining characteristics of mammals is that they have two nostrils, and we have them on the front of our face. The difference, of course, in whales is that they don't have two nostrils on the front of their face in their adult form. They have a blowhole on the top of their head. Developmentally, whales start off just like any other mammal by having two nostrils on the front of their face. And you can see the image here. And only later in development do we see movement of that blow of that nostril, those nostrils to the top of the head. So, developmentally, again, similar pattern. You start off in the way you've always done things, but then possibility for modification later. Okay. Now, I'm a geneticist, and of course, one of the most compelling lines of evidence that we'll talk about in some detail in this conference is the lines of genetic evidence that support the. the hypothesis that different species share common ancestors. So one thing you can do is you can look in present-day whales as an example and to look to see if they have any remnants of genes that show a dedication or an adaptation to a terrestrial manner of life. And the answer, or the, the result here, is that they do. So one category of genes that all mammals have are these things called olfactory receptors. So these are genes that are turned into proteins. So it's a DNA sequence that encodes for a protein, a large number of these different kinds of proteins. These proteins are put on the surface of our nose, so on the nasal epithelium. We breathe in air, and different chemicals in the air that we breathe bind onto these proteins, change their shape, and that change in shape is eventually read out as changes in nervous system activity. So this is how mammals have a sense of smell. And mammals, as a rule, have about 1,000 genes in their genomes that are dedicated to this sense. And when we only have about 22 to 25,000 genes in total, it shows you that we have a very large percentage of our genes that are devoted to this particular sense. The sense of smell is incredibly important to most mammals. Now, the sense of smell is not important to whales in the same way, especially the toothed whales. There's some evidence that baleen whales may still have a little bit of a sense of smell. But toothed whales, or odontocete whales, so think of like killer whales, sperm whales, that sort of thing, they don't actually even have an olfactory organ. They just have a blowhole that goes straight from their body wall to their lungs without an olfactory organ associated with that. Now, the reason for this is, is pretty straightforward. Um, odontocete whales, toothed whales, don't use a sense of smell for hunting. If you've ever gone swimming and attempted to smell underwater, you know why that's not a viable strategy, right? <laughs> but what's interesting is we can look in the genomes of present day toothed whales, and they have the same olfactory receptors for air based olfaction that any good mammal should have, except they have mutations that have accumulated in those genes that prevent those genes from being used. So whales have the genes for air-based olfaction. The other example here is that they also have the genes for air-based vision, for certain wavelength pigments that allow them to see effectively through air. Now, how do toothed whales do their hunting? They don't use the vision. They don't use vision primarily, and they don't use smell, because they're holding their breath. They use echolocation. So even though they have shifted their manner of life to a decidedly different way of doing things, Their genome still retain the features of that earlier past that geneticists can see and observe okay so what we see here then is converging lines of evidence and scientists are always happy when they get converging lines of evidence from different disciplines so we can look at dna sequencing we can look at embryology we can look at the fossil record and we can look at comparative anatomy and physiology which was what sort of set us on this path in the first instance because whales are mammals and share that common physiology with other mammals So as a result of looking at all these different areas, we can see that the lines of evidence converge with one another. They support the same hypothesis that whales are the descendants of terrestrial ancestors through a series of transitional forms. Okay, so as far as we know, whales don't lose much sleep over the idea that perhaps they descend from those grubby little land-dwelling creatures that we would never want to be. So, you know, we don't know if they lose sleep or not. As Christians, we do sometimes lose sleep over this question. We want to know, are we also a part of this pattern of speciation? Do humans also share ancestry with other forms of life? And the short answer is yes. The lines of evidence that I've just shown you, embryology, paleontology, the the fossil record, and DNA sequencing, all similarly have a coherent pattern of evidence that support the idea that humans do participate in this process, that that we are also the result of evolution. So one way to do this, and I, I won't look at the paleontological evidence and the embryological evidence, but it's there. Let's focus a little bit on genome sequencing, because that is something that has become recently a very powerful line of evidence that more Christians are becoming aware of. A friend of mine, Randy Isaac, who was mentioned by Nathaniel, once said in an article, he said, Prior to DNA sequencing, Christians had some wiggle room on this topic. But it looks like DNA sequencing has really taken away that wiggle room because of the compelling nature of what we're seeing in the genomes. So modern genome sequencing allows us to compare the human genome with other organisms. And morphologically, we are most similar to other great apes. So even Linnaeus put us in primates as a category based on shared morphology, shared anatomy and physiology. And prima, primate, is, you know, we're at the top, as it were, according to Linnaeus's strategy. So evolution would naturally predict that we would share the closest DNA similarity with other great apes because we share the closest morphological similarity with them. So it's a natural prediction. The human and chimpanzee genomes, when you compare them at a DNA level, base pair by base pair, are over 95% identical, one to another. One of the interesting things as a biologist that we found out is that it takes, you know, that languages actually change much more rapidly than species do. So you can actually have quite a bit of morphological and physiological change between species based on quite a small amount of genetic difference, which is really quite interesting. I know that Tompkins has, uh, just as an aside to Nathaniel, I know that Tompkins has published some papers that dispute that value and perhaps we'll have a conversation about that later, but yeah. Not only do we have the same genes, we also have them in the same basic order. So this is the idea of synteny, the idea that not only do we have the same genes, but we have them in the same spatial pattern. And there's no a priori reason why separately created species would necessarily have to have their genes in separate places, in different orders. To put it another way, our two genomes are pretty much exactly what you would predict as slightly modified versions of an ancestral genome. There's a huge amount of correspondence between our two genomes. Here's a a diagram that Nathaniel also showed. This is just showing you an overall pattern of DNA similarity, now with human chromosomes on the left and chimpanzee, the equivalent chimpanzee chromosomes on the right. This is very early work done in the 1980s when we were just doing DNA staining of chromosomes to look at them sort of as overall morphology of chromosomes. We, of course, have now sequenced over all of this, and the impression that you get of the same structures in the same order is confirmed at the individual DNA level. Nathaniel also mentioned mentioned pseudogenes, and I've just been talking about pseudogenes in whales, olfactory receptor pseudogenes. One of the interesting things about primates is that we too have lost quite a large number of these olfactory receptor pseudogenes. And that's actually not such a bad thing because we live in pretty crowded conditions and if we had the, you know, olfactory acuity of, you know, a wolf or something like that, we'd be able to, you know, it's like, hmm, somebody had eggs for breakfast or somebody needs to take a shower, you know, <laughs> or something along those lines. So, humans and primates in general have lost a large number of these olfactory receptor genes. Now. Sometimes when I'm speaking to non-specialist audiences, one of the questions that comes up is to say, well, how do you know what you're looking at is actually a defective gene? Could it be something else that has another function that you don't know about yet? We'll get into some of the details, but one way to start thinking about this is to look at this image that I have here. So here we have a, a structure that, if you were walking across a field and you came to this, you would know a few things about it. The first thing you would know is that, you know, a building was here. There's a building here but this building doesn't have all of the features associated with it that make it a fully functional building. It's lacking its roof, there's grass growing up through the floor. And at the the genetic level, it's similar, it's analogous to what a geneticist can see. You can see that perhaps most or almost all of a gene is there in the genome, and you can see that certain mutations have occurred that render its function, um, render it not able to function in the same way. This is also further bolstered by the idea that we can actually do DNA comparisons between a large number of related organisms. So in many cases, we'll see that same gene and it'll be functional in a number of species, but then it'll be non-functional in another species that's part of that overall species group. And as an aside, many times, those different groups correspond to what a young Earth creationist would agree descend from one another, that they would actually be part of a bear-man. So. In some cases, although this is interesting to me, in following the Young Earth creationist literature, we don't often see an example of using pseudogenes or nested hierarchies of genetic mutations as a way to define baromens to define different created kinds. I suspect that part of the reason for that is because these same lines of evidence also include humans in the primate barramen, but that's something that we can talk about later. It's actually something I don't exactly know, and maybe I can learn more from Dr. Jeanson on that front. Okay, you're not going to be able to read this. But perhaps if you look at it later online, you can have a look at it, or it's in the book as well. So what you're looking at here are a large number of different olfactory receptor genes in primates. And if you could see the text, what you would notice is that not only do the same mutations show up in different species, but those mutations or those different species not only have mutations in the different genes, but many of them have exactly the same DNA letter change in each of those different species. So the question that you then begin to wonder as a biologist is to say, hmm, are we looking at independent mutation events that independently produce these different identical mutations in multiple species? Or is it a case where we've had a mutation take place which then has been inherited by a number of species as they've gone their separate ways. And we end up seeing these different mutations which, with identical characteristics that form these nested hierarchies. Just as one example here, so this is the same data set but now put onto a phylogeny. We see some cases where we have mutations that are specific to an individual species. So in this example, there are 15 that are, identi- are human-specific, four that are chimpanzee. Ch- chimpanzee-specific and so on. We also see three in this little subset that are identical between humans and chimps. We also see a further three that are identical between humans, chimps, and gorillas, and a further six that are shared by humans, chimps, gorillas, and orangutans. But notice what we also don't see. We don't see this example in this data set a case where we see the same mutation in humans and we see it in, say, orangutans, where we don't also see it in chimpanzees and gorillas. And the reason for that is if there's a mutation that's shared between humans and orangutans under the evolutionary model, that mutation would have occurred in a population prior to humans and orangutans going their separate ways. That population is also the founding population of what will later go on to to diversify to become gorillas and chimpanzees as well. So if we see it in humans and orangutans, we can predict with great confidence that it will also be present in gorillas and chimpanzees. And we do. We see this nested nested pattern. Okay, Couldn't pseudogenes be, in fact, functional genes? Let's just dig into this a little bit more deeply. And again, it's going to be challenging to see this on the small screens, but we'll do the best that we can. So here's an example from the human genome of a number of genes on a chromosome. And there's one gene in the middle that is a pseudogene. So it's picked up a number of mutations that render it non-functional. Now, interestingly, this same arrangement of these same genes is also present in the mouse genome. So again, you won't be able to see it unless you're looking at it fairly close up. But we have the same order of genes on the mouse chromosome as we do on the human chromosome. Now, these genes do not have the same function. They're not in a sort of coordinated set of genes that have to be in this particular pattern in order to accomplish their functions. They could be in different places in the genome if they wanted to. The idea here is is that we're looking at a small segment of chromosome where things have not been broken up and shifted since humans and mice shared a common ancestor at about 125 million years ago in the past or so. So we see in the mouse genome, we see that this gene is a functional gene. Its actual function is a... Uh, nuclear hormone receptor and we know from its structure by looking at its structure and also by experimental analysis in the mouse that it actually has this function because we can test it directly in the mouse then we see that same sequence or something that is almost identical to that exact same sequence in the human genome and we see it in the same context among the same genes that we see in the mouse genome but that gene in the human genome has some mutations in it, which render it non-functional. Now, let's just explore a special independent creation model here for a moment, just just to give you an idea of how biologists look at this data and maybe wrestle with these different ideas. And I can wrestle with this as a Christian biologist, because to me, whether God used evolution or did special independent creation, I'm willing to explore the evidence and see where the evidence goes. I'm good either way, because whether God uses what we would call a natural mechanism to create or uses divine special creation. God uses natural mechanisms all the time. God uses special stuff all the time. I'm good either way. Let's just go with where the data goes. What I would end up having to postulate as a Christian biologist is that, okay, there's a function here in the human genome. Say, okay, maybe this isn't a pseudogene. Maybe this is actually something that's functional. I don't understand what its function is, but I'll, I'll go on faith that there's function there. Perhaps I can test that later. And I'd have to say, okay, well, God intended that function to be there, and for some reason it has to be that way such that it looks very, very much like a different function in mouse because those two things cannot have the same function. I know that by looking at their comparative differences. So could God have given humans that function in another way? Yes, God is perfectly capable of designing that function into our genome in any location he chooses and in any way he chooses. So you end up with this interesting situation where you would have to say, okay, is somehow God constrained to put that particular thing right there to provide that function? Or am I looking at the results of common ancestry? And biologists, Christian biologists included, overwhelmingly go with, it looks like common ancestry. Okay. And this is just because geneticists get bored and they go, they geek out and go digging around in databases. And this is just to show you, again, you won't be able to see it, but this exact same mutation that we see in humans that render this particular gene non-functional, that particular mutation, many of those mutations are also shared by chimpanzees as well. So even if we sort of solved the problem for the human genome, we would also have to discuss about why that function is there in that particular form in the chimpanzee genome. Okay, here's one example that I also like to talk about, and it's in the book, this idea of vitilogenin pseudogenes in marsupials and placentals. So, vitilogenins are this interesting category of genes that egg-laying organisms use for their biology. The way egg-laying organisms supply their embryos with with a store of nutrition is with using these genes, they're very large genes, They're made in the liver of the mother and then transported through the blood to the developing egg. And they're laid up in the egg as a store of nutrition. So most of what you see in an egg yolk, that yellow stuff, a large percentage of that are these things called vitilogenins. And the reason for that is the mother will eventually deposit an eggshell around that embryo, and then the connection between the mother and the offspring will be broken at that point. So the mother can't provide that material uh, nutrition to the embryo anymore. Now, placental mammals and marsupial mammals do things differently. We maintain a connection with our embryos through the placenta, if we're placental mammals, or we have um, uh, um, marsupial mammals have a slightly different placenta that they use. So what this research group was interested in was to simply say, I wonder if we could look in the genomes of placental mammals and marsupial mammals for remnants of genes that are devoted to egg yolk production. So they wanted to know, are are there still remnants of vitilogenin gene sequences in marsupials and placentals? And the short answer is is that yes. So other lines of evidence that I don't have time to talk to you about right now suggest that placental mammals, such as humans, share a common ancestor with egg-laying organisms at about 310 million years ago. If you look in the human genome, the the, the way this research group answered this question was they said, okay, Let's look in the chicken genome for where we find functional vitilogenin genes. And then they noted what other genes are next to those genes in the human genome, or in the chicken genome. And then they went to the human genome and said, are these other neighboring genes still around in the human genome? Are they present? And they are in the same spatial pattern. And when you look then at the relevant spots in the human genome, Wherever you see these little black bars, and this is not to scale because if I drew it to scale it would be very difficult to see, but the general impression is the right one. Wherever you see a black bar, you've got sequence matches between the human genome and the chicken genome. So there are small fragmentary remains of vitilogenin like sequences in the human genome at precisely the location that you would predict them to be based on the flanking gene sequences that we see in chickens. This same pattern is also present in opossums as well. So opossums, just as one example of a marsupial, and they actually have even better retention of these sequences. So again, one could try to make the argument that there needed to be a function that's different from vitilogenin functions that has to be in the genome of the opossum and the human at this specific location, or you could say, hmm, this is evidence that supports common ancestry. Okay, and this is just because biologists get bored, and yes, those same mutations are shared by a large number of different species, placental, marsupial, and otherwise. Okay, I think based on time I'm going to skip over this, but we can come back to it if need be. Sometimes folks are wonder curious about, you know, evolution is good at removing function, but Where does new information come from in evolution? You know, is evolution capable of producing new information? And the short answer is yes, I've got a big section in the book that goes along these lines. Here's just one example where we can look at closely related organisms. And what we see, so here's humans, chimps and gorillas again. Sometimes when we look through the human human genome, we'll find genes in the human genome that appear to be functional. And we will notice that those genes aren't present as genes in our closest relatives, in gorillas and chimpanzees. But when, when we carefully examine the DNA sequences of those other species, we find out that there are sequences there that are almost identical to the functional gene in humans, but are just perhaps one or two or three mutations away from becoming a gene, as it were. And the type of research, we have to be very, very careful that we're not looking at loss here. So you have to go through all sorts of controls to make sure that we're not looking at something that was functional in all three organisms and then was lost in gorillas and chimps. But we've done this, and there are a number of genes now that fit this category where it seems like a gene has come into being in the genome through the result of mutation. Okay, let's see. Let's just briefly talk about design arguments before we land the plane here. Design arguments have a long history within Christianity. And in fact, one of the things I like to do as a hobby, yeah, scientists, we have weird hobbies, what can I say? One of the things I really like doing as a scientist is reading the apologetics literature from the 1600s. Well, why is that? Well, in the 1600s, the church went through a very similar discussion to the one that we're going through right now. Uh, Except the science of the day wasn't genetics or genomics, the science of the day was heliocentrism, whether or not the sun was the center of our solar system or whether or not the earth was the center and the sun went around the earth. And you can find fantastic apologetic resources from the 1600s that address this question. I tell you, I could not get away with a title like that. you got to love the length of titles that people had back then, right? (laughs) A Demonstration of the Existence and Providence of God from the Contemplation of the Visible Structure of the Greater and Lesser World in Two Parts, and then it goes on, and that's still all the title. My editor would not let me get away with that now. Okay. Here's an interesting case where this author, and I actually discuss his views in um, Adam and the Genome a bit on, um, on some other related issues, but here's a simple test case where he's actually talking about solar fusion. So he says you know if it be asked where is the fuel for those vast fires you talking about the sun which continually burn whence is it that they are not spent and they are exhausted how are those flames fed so he has no idea how you can have a sun which is you know on fire and on fire for a really long period of time without it being consumed so he says none can resolve these equest- these questions but the almighty creator who bestowed on them their being who made them great and wonderful that in them we might read his existence, his power, and his providence." Okay, So in modern language, Edwards is making a design inference. He's saying, there's no known causal explanation for the longevity of solar combustion. God can maintain solar combustion using miracles or by adding fuel, perhaps. So since there is no natural explanation, we can infer from solar combustion to follow this individual that God exists. And it's an inference to the best explanation. Now, Edwards is very clear that on what his sort of motivation for writing is. And just as an aside, this is not the American Puritan theologian, Jonathan Edwards. Sometimes this gets confusing to people. This is John Edwards, who's an English apologist writing in the late 1600s. He says, if I cannot by this attempt convince atheists, yet I hope to do something toward preventing the spreading of that pernicious infection, which they are the authors of. Or if my hopes fail me to this, I will not despair of confirming and strengthening such who are, all, who are really persuaded of the doctrine here presented or here treated of. So he's basically saying, if I can't at least take atheists down a peg or two, at least I can shore up the faith of Christians. Right? Okay. So, now, what does, what does he not know? Right? What does Edwards not know? He doesn't know about solar fusion, and it's going to be quite a while before solar fusion is understood scientifically. Now... Is the understanding that solar fusion is the mechanism by which the sun is kept burning for long periods of time, does that negate an understanding that God is the author of that process, that God is somehow using that process as a way? Like, if we could go back in time and explain it to Edwards, would he have a crisis of faith? I hope not, right? Okay. So, are design arguments that rely on a lack of evidence a good idea for Christians to employ? I would say no. This is a quote that I like f- very much from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and i 'll just read and read it in part. He says, "Weacker 's book, "The Worldview of Physics," is still keeping me very busy he 's actually writing this from prison. How is it that Bonhoeffer, who is in prison, has the ability to interact with a book on the science faith dialogue at his time and place? He is a, an example to us all." It is again, sorry, he says, the worldview of physics is still keeping me very busy. It is again brought home to me quite clearly how wrong it is to use God as a stopgap for the incompleteness of our knowledge. If, in fact, the frontiers of knowledge are being pushed back, and this is is bound to be the case, then God is being pushed back with them and, therefore, is in continual retreat. We are to find God in what we know, not in what we don't know. God wants us to realize his presence not in unsolved problems, but in those that are solved. Okay. One way of thinking about this is it's very common for Christians to view evolution as somehow against design or contrary to design, that God is either a designer and a creator. We could substitute creation for design if we wanted to there. We would say evolution versus creation, evolution versus design. I take a different view. I actually take a view that evolution is the design. That evolution is a process that God has ordained and sustained and uses providentially to bring about the biodiversity on Earth that He desires to be there. So it's a different way of thinking about things. Okay, Nathaniel sort of stole my thunder here, but that's okay. This is um, from Todd Wood. This is a quote, and I'll finish with this quote here. This is Todd a few years ago talking about the truth about evolution. He says, I hope this doesn't turn into a rant, but it might. You've been warned. It says, evolution is not a theory in crisis. It's not teetering on the verge of collapse. It has not failed as a scientific explanation. There is evidence for evolution, gobs and gobs of it. It is not just speculation or a faith choice or an assumption or a religion. It is a productive framework for lots of biological research, and it has amazing explanatory power. There is no conspiracy to hide the truth about the failure of evolution. There really has been no failure of evolution as a scientific theory. It works, and it works well. I say these things not because I'm crazy or because I've converted to evolution. So as Nathaniel mentioned, Todd Wood is a young earth creationist. Nevertheless, he holds these views. As you might expect, he gets a bit of flack for it. He says, I'm, he says I'm not, I say these things not because I'm crazy or because I've converted to evolution. I say these things because they are true. Then he goes on to say I'm motivated because I've read some other clueless person saying that evolution is a failure. But you can read that on his blog if you're interested. All right, with that, I'll thank you for your attention. And uh, I guess questions are after dinner, but thank you very much for your attention.